Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business model, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 96 of the podcast, the topic is practicing multimodal AI. Our guest is Slater Viktorov, CTO and founder of Indico, the enterprise AI startup. In this conversation, we talk about how Slater was picking trash off of the Wellesley dump for school engineering projects, how he loves Chinese fantasy fiction, Janja, with its immortal heroes, his experience at, uh, at Techstars founding a startup, and how startups beat juggernaut, juggernauts like IBM spending billions of dollars. We discuss how his company, Indico, practices multimodal AI, a set of blended techniques that make data sing. We muse about the future where citizen data scientists contribute to better problem framing, driven by subject matter experts. Slater, how are you today? I'm doing really well, you know. Thanks so much for having me here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Um, not every day you, you've got a real prodigy on. I, I, I've been looking into your background and, you know, also we spoke earlier. You must have been, you must have been a, an interesting student to, to, to have in school. I, oh, I'm, I'm sure I was, to say the least. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, different teachers responded to it differently, and some I'm still wonderful friends with all these years later, and some I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, uh, in all serious, uh, seriousness, it's it's not it's sort of a blessing and a, and a curse, right? Because you know, no one really begs for being different, uh, you know, even in a positive way, arguably, right? No, I mean, it was, it was definitely, um, you know, we can, we can argue back and forth on, on whether or not it's a positive way, but, you know, certainly given, given, you know, my, my state, you know, traditional education was always a bit, a bit tough, but, uh, I think the positive, uh, that it really brought across was that it gave me a really clear sense of how differently different people can learn. And, you know, granted, it meant that a lot of high school was maybe not perfectly fit to my style, but it meant that when I found a, a school that really sort of spoke to me for college, uh, you know, it, it was that more—it was that much clearer to me how different it was from traditional education. So, so we we didn't talk about this, so I may be in deep water here. But you went to North Hollywood, highly gifted high school. I'm guessing it was different from nine hundred two one zero high school experience, oh, which gosh, I recall yeah. from oh, old, wow. watching old TV shows. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, very different. Um, probably the first thing to clarify for people that don't know about LA is uh, North Hollywood. Probably, uh, you know, when people think Hollywood, people sometimes think you know a very glitzy kind of fancy place. People from LA, uh, I never have to explain this to, because, uh, you know, North Hollywood is very much not that. Uh, North Hollywood uh, is a lot more famous for its gang violence than for anything upscale. Uh, no, I mean, it, it was a strange high school, to be sure. It was a very interesting, I mean, I, I'm extremely thankful for it, right? You know, I think the Highly Gifted Magnet, it's a really, really great program. It's been, you know, under, under a bit of siege within LAUSD in recent years. Uh, my graduating class, actually, if you can believe it or not, at a public school was 42 students. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, I, I always just considered it special ed, frankly. Um, but we did, uh, we did have more than our fair share of uh, academic awards. But Slater, then you went on to 
Olin College, which is uh, in my neighborhood here in Wellesley. And that's another very special school in the sense that, you know, they follow a quite different curriculum. How, how was that experience for you? Uh, you know, it, it was it was wonderful. Uh, you know, I think the best way that I could sum it up is when I was out looking at colleges, I had the implicit assumption that no matter where I went, uh, I would not go to class very often. I would show up for tests and hopefully I would be able to get good grades. And so that was actually something that I was actively kind of uh, screening for in the schools, right? Like, do I have to show up to every class? Um, when I showed up at Olin, though, uh, they were the first school that ever convinced me that I had it wrong. Uh, and for those of you that uh, you know aren't aware, which is probably pretty much everyone, because Olin's you know very small and very new, Olin is uh, totally engineering education and it's entirely project-based. And what that meant is that going to class wasn't about, you know, hearing a kind of half-baked lecture that I was going to go and have to reread the notes after class anyway, right? It was much more about having active help on projects that you were working on, right? These were actual applications of the theory that you had learned earlier in the week. Um, and, and, you know, the thing that I just really, really loved is that there's no hiding. Right. You know, I, I had gotten pretty good at taking tests over the years, and I always felt bad that especially if it's a multiple choice test, pure strategy can it can just do so much for a test like that. But when, you know, it's like I always say about engineers, right, there's no partial credit if the bridge falls down, um, even though like at Olin, they probably would give you partial credit for trying something so ambitious. But, you know, the idea is when you actually have to make something work, um, really have to push yourself to a much deeper level. Uh, than you would otherwise. And I think a lot of schools are, are kind of afraid to put that much pressure on students. Not for, not for terrible reasons either, uh, but for me, it was really, really effective. Uh, I actually withdrew my application to every other school uh, after I visited Olin for the first time. So it was the only school uh, I applied to for college. You know, I wanted to spend a little time on your background because, you know, we'll very shortly move on to uh, various parts of, of this AI picture. But but I do think that your background, you know, uh, it does spell, it, it's interesting to to just consider. I know you're also very much into Chinese fantasy fiction, uh, you yeah, know, where yep. immortal heroes are, are battling. And, and I'm wondering, that kind of fictional universe, I mean, was that sort of an escape that just provides a very rich environment, sort of quite different from the everyday that you were faced with. I'm not trying to psychologize you, but it, there's something kind of cool about just jumping into fiction really, really deeply. Uh, tell us about no, that. I, I mean, I, I will say, I have you ever heard of The Hero with a Thousand Faces? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a book by Joseph Campbell. And it's, you know, one of the first books where he kind of outlines his hero journey. And there's a, a quote that he has pretty early on in the book that, you know, the first time I read it, I thought it was the most grandiose, absurd thing that I ever heard. Uh, and as time went on, I've kind of learned to appreciate more and more, uh, like, the gravity of these words. So it's the, the story is the portal through which the boundless energy of the cosmos pours into human society, very roughly. Um, and it's, again, you know, like just on the face, and I'm probably butchering the quote a bit, right? You know, you can look it up. It's not, not too that, it's not too far away from that. It just sounds so grandiose, right? How could this possibly be true? But what he goes on to describe and what I, I think people kind of rail against this, uh, unconsciously, but actually embracing it has been really effective for me, which is that 
fiction allows you to kind of go outside of yourself to solve problems that you're too close to as an individual, right? And, and it was something that I had never really considered, or, you know, if I ever thought about fiction like that, that was, you know, me not being strong enough to get over that hump. But what I had never thought about it as is, you know, fiction is almost this this force multiplier for your efforts, where by getting outside of your mind a little bit, you can get a new perspective on a problem. And, you know, I just thought that was really, really powerful. Uh, you know, I, I happened to find, uh, you know, Shansha, which is, you know, these Chinese uh, immortal fantasy books, really compelling for a couple of reasons. But I think one of the ones that is, it's most strange from a Western uh, perspective, because these books are really heavily intertwined with religion. And one of the things that is near universal, actually, is that the line between like humanity and divinity is extremely blurry and porous, right? Um, and, and it's kind of this, this assumption, right, is that, you know, if you're good enough at, you know, being a person at some point, you know, you gain all these kind of special abilities, uh, which, you know, like, I think it, it's kind of a fun idea. But I think just that that blurry line is such a it's such an alien concept from, I think, like a traditional, like Abrahamic uh, background. So I, I really appreciate the take. Uh, well, look, you, you provided me with a nice segue because, uh, you know, whether there is a, a, a massive, uh, you know, schism between humans and, and the divine, right? It's arguably a little up for grabs in, in at least some people's fear about AI. So let's fast forward to present day. You, you're with... Yeah, the company you founded, Indico, you've just raised $22 million and you're involved in what you guys call intelligent process automation, which I'm, I'm taking to be a version of what people have called RPA or robotic process automation, which is an interesting field in and of itself. But you have a, a sort of a little take on this and you're definitely involved in multimodal systems and and I wanted to get us into this discussion about what's really going on in technology these days, um, wanted you to maybe start us off a little bit with kind of getting into this dichotomy between supervised and unsupervised learning and sort of the, the data spectrum that we are faced with these days. Definitely. Um, because it's not just algorithms sitting on an academic shelf anymore. I mean, this is real world data with real world consequences and just bring in a, bring us into this universe yeah and and you know I think I really love the uh, the lead-in with RPA because I think that's also an interesting lens that uh, kind of is brought to this this whole pop, uh, problem uh, and you know again for for folks that you know I think RPA the, the bounds around it are kind of fuzzy like in a lot of cases and people might have different definitions but you know traditionally I think of this as robotic process automation and that's to say you're automating robotic processes again which is uh, pretty reasonable, but people often don't break it up that way. And that's to say processes that can be really easily broken down into, you know, pick this up, put this down, copy a value from here, paste it there. And what RPA has really exposed is that, you know, there are a huge number of use cases that fit really well into that mentality and they, you know, it's a perfect fit. Um, and what they tried to do at first actually was make AI fit into that, that kind of a bubble, right? That kind of a, a construction. And that's where you get a lot of these uh, black box conceptions of AI, right? Which is it's a, it's a closed off API and it's got an input and it's got an output and I can't change it and I have no idea what's going on inside of it. Um, and I think that it's, um, you know, it's made to fit into that RPA mentality, right? It's kind of an activity like any other. You can copy something, you can paste something, you can extract the values of an invoice. But I think what's really interesting, and this is both true about intelligent process automation and I think AI more broadly, 
is that it turns out that these very, um, what I'd call myopic problem framings, I think we're really starting to run into the inherent limits with those framings. Uh, you know, and I think on the AI side, you see this everything from a basic, you know, binary classification of sentiment, but you see it reflected in RPA as well, right? This idea that you've got these very neat bundled outputs of every single model that you create. And certainly, you know, those are powerful abstractions, right? I mean, class, you know, everything is classification and regression, you know, like that's a powerful abstraction that's gotten us a very, very long way in the ML space. But I actually think that uh, it's kind of getting to the end of its life. Right. And I think that these simple problem framings, you know, are, are turning really into shackles more than anything that's going to uh, uh, push us forward. Um, and, you know, we can dig further into kind of multimodal and, and the data spectrum, because I think those are some really interesting talk points here. But maybe before we, uh, you know, double click on those, um, I think one of the really broad, interesting kind of shifts in this space is that. Uh, did I mention all the clever Hans effect to you? Uh, when we talked earlier? No, no, no. So it's a, it's just a, it's a kind of nascent term for what I'll dub uh, incredible intelligence and stunning ignorance uh, in, in these ML models, right? So, you know, in, in AI, we, we've got this paradox where, you know, every problem that we can crisply construct and measure the output on, it looks like these models are performing as well as humans. At the same time, we shift anything about it just slightly it's almost a child's play, right? To get these same models to exhibit really stunning levels of ignorance. Uh, and, and I didn't come up with this term. Someone else has kind of dubbed this the Clever Hans effect. Uh, and have you ever heard of Clever Hans? Uh, I haven't myself. So, so, so explain I, it to our, yeah, to I, our uh, listeners, certainly. I think it's an American story, actually. And it's from kind of an old... Uh, like, and that's to say, I'm not 100% sure where it has come from, but it was a real horse in the 1800s. And the idea is that this horse could do math. And it was in one of these old kind of traveling medicine shows where people would come, you know, come to see the horse that could do math. And the way it would work is they would have this chalkboard set up and they would write down, you know, a very basic kind of addition, you know, subtraction, multiplication uh, kind of problem. And the horse would then stamp its hoof. Uh, you know, until it got to the right answer. And somehow it was always right. And, you know, this was a... This is ringing a bell now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it yeah. turns out, it's you know... A they, funny, it's a funny situation. Absolutely. And, and so they did a lot of testing, you know, just to figure out, okay, how on earth is this happening? And no one was really aware. Everyone thought this was, this was almost legitimate. But what it turns out is that the only thing that the horse had to do, actually, was read its handling. And so because of the way they were measuring it, Right, where it was stamping its foot until it had to stop. It was just reading the handler to see when the handler was tense. And then, you know, it stamped, stamped, stamped. Ah, you know, it finally hit the right number. It looked for that relief in the handler's body. Again, completely unconscious. Uh, and gets the right answer every single time. Um, and, you know, the argument goes, there's a close analogy for AI where often we can get the right answer through the wrong path that then begs this question of, okay, how do we actually force this AI? How do we actively encourage it to follow the right path? So. Look, I'm interested. This is, it's fascinating. <laughs> the Clever Hands uh, idea is is fascinating. And certainly, you know, in today's AI, I find there there is a lot of sort of both. There is a lot of the clear hype. And then there's a lot of the... Um, 
you know, enormous skepticism that, oh, because there is hype, there is nothing here. And, you know, there are people saying, you know, this is just math. Like you were onto this, like this is just regression. And, you know, you could sort of be impressed or not by regression. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, is there really nothing behind here? Is the, is this just sort of some pure statistics with uh, some extra bells and whistles on it? And and where's the real uh, mass, you know, where's the real magic in here? And And if there is magic... Uh, some people would say, arguably, that magic is, is a black box, and and we can't have that, right? And there's a little absolutely debate around that because you know whether it is magic or not. If it is a black box, and if it does turn, you know, bad or biased, uh, that is arguably more and more of a problem. So, absolutely, what do you, what do you have to say for that? And also, um, as we get into more kind of multimodal data sets as well, where you're taking in an enormous array of data. You're not just comparing apples and apples and apples that have been classified as, you know, various colors, just to simplify it here. But we're taking in pictures, you're taking in things that are analyzed in various ways, and then you want it then combined to do pretty amazing things. I mean, it wouldn't take much of a critical mind to sort of think, this, uh, you know, is going to have to fall into some sort of system that we can understand. Otherwise, you, you know, where is this taking us? I, absolutely. You know, and I agree 100% with, with everything you've said. And uh, so here, my, my first thing is like, I, I don't believe in magic, right? You know, very much, you know, AI, you know, and, you know, I, I deal with, uh, you know, some pretty sophisticated modern deep learning techniques in the grand scheme of things. And so, you know, let me just say, you know, right out, there is absolutely no magic here, right? You know, it it is just statistics at the end of the day. Now, you know, granted, I don't want that to detract from the real impact of these new techniques, right? My view very much is that all academic inquiry is almost out of necessity incremental, right? Uh, but that making real incremental improvement is incredibly difficult to do. And when someone has made a real incremental improvement, and that, that's what I would say, you know, modern deep learning techniques are, right? You know, it was kind of this, this real, very significant increment made in the machine learning space, right? I mean, it didn't recreate it. I mean, these techniques existed, but it was, it was a critical mass of almost tips and tricks that we accumulated to actually get the damn things to work, right? Um, and, and so I, I find it really, really difficult. And, and, you know, again, as a deep learning guy myself, I, I really rankle almost at this pitch that so many people have, which is that deep learning is this panacea and it's going to walk your dog and clean your car, right? Uh, I very much don't believe in that. Um, so what I would say is, is A, um, I also think that explainability, you know, I think explainability is a very, it's a complicated term. Right? I think different people mean very, very different things by explainability. I think that the most important aspect, though, to recognize about AI is that it is only as useful as our control interface to it is. Right? You know, to, to that point, right? If, it, if it's magic, if we can't control it, if we can't push it left or right or correct it, it, it is not a useful thing. And I think that this is where there's actually, a, I think, an analogy that people have for AI kind of implicitly that's, that's simplistic, it's maybe even harmful, which is sort of this notion of AI as kind of a, an autonomous, conscious thing with its own drives and desires, right? You know, they'll frame things. Does the AI understand, right? 
And that's just, it, it's not how it works, right? At, at the end of the day, it is a set of tools that we have to deploy in very, very specific ways. And where I think this touches really interestingly on multimodal learning and, and where I also think that we're kind of pushing on some of the boundaries of current problem framings is that we are officially giving our modeling uh, too simplistic a task, right? You know, for a long time, we weren't able to solve these simplistic tasks. We weren't able to solve these really niche point tasks, but now we can. Unfortunately, we're now looking at these very niche point tasks as symbols of broader intelligence. And, you know, there's no accuracy level you can hit on sentiment analysis that is a significant advancement in this space, right? Um, you know, like, I, I don't care if it is 100%. Like, there, there is no 100%. We have to evolve beyond this simple construction of, of sentiment analysis, right? Or these simple classification constructions. So... Um, I, I want to dig a little deeper on some of these things in a second. But but first, uh, another thing that sort of is, I guess, puzzling in this debate is, and I think Indico is, I guess, an example of it too. How is it, if it isn't magic, in a sense, a magic in sort of like colloquial sense, that a you know small-ish startup, and you as an example, there are other startups, obviously, in AI, can manage to beat these massive juggernauts, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, famous uh, IBM, you know, famous uh, because it's easy to beat on IBM because uh, they're so big and have been around. So it's like a fun yeah. thing to do. But, but, but in all seriousness, how is this even possible that you can, I mean, is it the more clever use of existing tools? Is it some clever access to data that corporations or otherwise have given to you? Or is it that there are still some tricks in the trade that do require a little bit of feel for the game or something that you just have to stumble upon that isn't just building, building block upon building block? Because you would, Absolutely. I would sort of like assume, and again, I'm embellishing it a little bit, but mm -hmm. you know, here's IBM, they've been doing all of this. They have thousands of people engaged in this activity. Why is it that they can't build rock upon rock and, and then just really just blow you guys out of the ballpark any day they want? It's, you know, it, it's an absolutely great question. And, you know, I think I'm going to start by saying that, yes, you know, Indico has done this. But to your point, we're, we're far from the only ones, right? I mean, you look at Clarify, right? I mean, you look at Alien, right? And, and you know, everywhere you look, kind of the world is dotted with these really impressive companies doing real significant work in the ML space. And to your point... It, you know, as an outsider looking at this, you're like, okay, Google has invested billions of dollars into an industry research lab. And how is it possible that, you know, Joe Schmo in his bedroom, and some of these people are literally Joe Schmo in their bedroom, right? I mean, that's how we started this space. We were Joe Schmo in a dorm room, can actually contribute to this space. And I think that the key is that people, um, I think people, because they don't spend a lot of time in academia, they misunderstand the nature of academic exploration, right? I think people often have this notion, uh, you know, sometimes I joke, it's, you know, it's the, it's the old man jumping out of a bathtub uh, shouting Eureka, right? That there's some fixed list of problems, right? And then you're going to like check them off and then somehow you know everything, right? Um, but especially in AI, especially in a space that is very early on, actually research does not work like that. So basically every paper that you put out is going to ask two more questions, right? And you've got this interesting thing where sort of the frontier of research is expanding outward broadly. 
uh, in, in kind of all directions. And that means the surface area that you can kind of devote yourself to, to make real significant improvements is also increasing. Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. I actually often like to tell companies there is no better time for a startup that is trying to make a real technical advantage to start their ML journey than today. Uh, and, and I will also say that the other thing that allows these small companies to have so much success relative to investment is that the problem is fundamentally a system level problem, right? You know, if you ask what are, you know, these massive companies really, really good at is where it is one block ahead of the other and, you know, very linear path to improvement, they can execute like crazy on that. And I don't care whether it's Google or IBM or Microsoft or Amazon, you know, they are going to win, right? You know, if I had to compete on the economics of marginal S3 capacity, not a chance, right? But because so much of AI today is not just about model infrastructure, right? It's about how are you going to supervise it, right? How are you going to actually get the infrastructure working behind the scenes? And the truth, you know, the ugly truth is, frankly, that academics hate to work on these problems. And academics are so uh, honored today that you can't get an academic to work on something that they don't want to work on. Uh, and so it means that there's there's kind of this very big blind spot where they're always going to have the best architectures. But even within their own organizations, believe it or not, it's very easy for a small company like ours to look at research that their labs are publishing. And because of their internal processes, we may have it in production before they do, maybe even months or years before they do, uh, which, again, I think it just it, it really it goes to say a lot more about the space uh, than anything. It was so interesting to me, unless I misunderstand you, but you are now, you're characterizing big tech companies in the same vein as academic labs in the sense that you're saying they have this, they're, they're basically burdened with the same kinds of problems because of their size and their interest in the generic nature of the problem that anybody really from the outside who can pick up the pieces and execute faster and more in, you know, creatively, I guess, has a shot Absolutely. right now at this very moment. Perhaps, though, it is a temporary advantage, right? I, I think 100%. Um, in fact, I, I'd kind of go a step further and just say that, you know, and I also will say, I think this is unique to AI as a space. Most academic spaces, I don't think, work like this, but there is so much open publishing and the space moves so quickly that, you know, the era of trying to have some proprietary advantage that you guard, you know, a it's gone, right? Because the, the duration of a state-of-the-art algorithm today is is months, right? Uh, and, and, you know, again, companies, you know, lifetimes are measured in years and decades. So, you know, either, if you think you've got a proprietary advantage, either you're mistaken and you're missing some research that someone else out there is doing, or you have six months to live. And then Slater, what might be the reason that so many of these startups are kind of, I guess, allowed to exist for quite quite long quite a long time is that because this only serves the big tech ecosystem uh, to have all these startups out there and it's not really a threat because you could sort of pick them off the ground anytime you want and it's just you you need all that variety to make this sort of even incremental progress that I guess many of us are are, are interested in and, and some of us fear mm. right this is sort of a uh, progress that that would take us somewhere really, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, somewhere re really far beyond where we are right now, which I, I guess is kind of a little bit our discussion as well. Where are we at this moment in AI? And are we heading into a winter, a summer, a spring, or whatever season you might 
you know, uh, yeah. you might fancy? No, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, and I think honestly, your, your initial take is, is pretty spot on. You know, I think that for all of the progress that has been made, and this is something that, I don't know, either I've gotten more cynical or realistic over the years, but I used to be, I, I used to think in individual years, now I think in terms of decades, right? So the adoption is certainly going very, very well, but we're still in sort of the first decade of adoption of most of these techniques. And I, I think it is exactly that, right? Is I think that, you know, Google and, and anyone that really understands this space realizes that there is too much ground to cover for individuals, right? And I think certainly their plan is they're just going to look at all of these seeds and, you know, they're going to see what pops up. I think one thing that's also, though, really interesting is when you look at a lot of the ecosystem players like NVIDIA, and NVIDIA obviously is, do you know that NVIDIA has a 50% higher market cap than Intel today? I, I was shocked. I did not believe that. Well, I, it's uh, an extremely interesting company that we... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> would take an entire podcast to explore for sure. No, so they have um, one technique in particular, look, just where they invest heavily into the ecosystem and they don't want anyone to be acquired and they just want to sell GPUs. So. Well, in, in, in fact, uh, I've been looking at their, uh, their startup lab, basically. I can't remember what it's called right now, but it's gotten uh, quite some attention because they literally have this ecosystem approach to startups. Uh, as long as you you know, are interested in, in, in broadly working in, in the direction that, or, or not even, I guess, using their platform, but everybody at some point will, will be using their platform, right? So, Absolutely. so they just want the thousand flowers to, to bloom, essentially. I, and, you know, NVIDIA has really done a lot for the community. You know, I think there's a couple of huge players that I think have, you know, without them, this AI renaissance would not have happened. And NVIDIA is absolutely one of them. In fact, NVIDIA is probably the only one that managed to successfully capitalize on their position. Uh, it's like, I think Kaggle, for instance, is another, but, you know, NVIDIA actually made an incredibly successful business and continues to do so, whereas Kaggle, you know, they did a comparable amount of good in just educating the world of data scientists out there, but, you know, obviously a very different commercial outcome. Well, I mean, they're, they're an interesting uh, counter sort of to, to NVIDIA, though. One sort of like more hardware-based and one <laughs> people-based, I guess, you know, be, believing in networks of, of clever people. Um, I wanted to take us a little bit towards sort of the future because a yeah, lot of these yes. AI debates, they either they, they either sort of stop at like status quo where you can sort of discuss what's possible now and, you know, what's going on right now. I wanted to kind of bring us a little bit out of that picture, but not only from this whole like visionary, like crazy, crazy, you know, the, the world's so different. But if you just look at, you said you think in decades, let's, let's sort of roll up some decades here. Yeah. If you look at the next decade, we're, I don't know, my first take would be, you know, it would be further in this multimodal direction. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of blended techniques. We're going to have to spend Absolutely. more time than we really wanted to testing them and verifying them. And there'll be an enormous governmental regulatory backlash, uh, obviously, because these things are getting serious. Mm -hmm. That much is very certain. What else is, are we to expect this decade? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, there's really, really deep uh, potential in the multimodal space, you know, and I think maybe to, to paint the picture, because again, you know, I think you and I have talked about this, but it maybe, you know, maybe not every, every listener has. Um, this idea that 
you know, traditional machine learning works within a particular modality, you know, text or image or audio. And that, and, you know, we're starting to see this today with, you know, some of the papers out of OpenAI, but I think, again, very much in their infancy, where you actually blend together these different modalities. And, you know, I think it happens in, in two directions, which is kind of interesting. So you have one direction, which is a, you know, clip out of OpenAI was sort of the recent hot thing here, where you have one model that can understand both text and image, right? Uh, that can, you know, caption images that, you know, you can type in text and it'll generate some image as a result. And, and you know, it's very, very interesting to have that kind of central reasoning chamber, if you will. Uh, but I also think the inverse of that problem is really, really interesting because what they're not doing, for instance, they don't have blended image and text that they're trying to do inference on, right? Uh, and I think that there's... Uh, Another kind of very interesting spur of this research that's coming out now, and I think people, you know, it's pretty hotly debated how interesting this field of study will eventually be, but neurosymbolic methods, uh, which is a little bit this, this idea of how do we take this really fuzzy, rich, unstructured understanding that we've got with today's deep learning techniques and maybe fuse them with some of those older symbolic techniques and find if there's kind of a happy middle path where we can uh, have our cake and eat it too. You know, and I... I think neurosymbolic techniques are probably one of the uh, areas in AI where I'm, I'm most uh, ambivalent, right? And not in the, like, I don't care one way or the other. It's that I've got really conflicting ideas about whether it's going to be really, really successful or, or not. But I think it, you know, again, it's one more area of these multimodal techniques where we're starting to see some really, really interesting research. And I think when we kind of cast this forward and start thinking about a lot of these kind of... Uh, more detailed inference problems. When we think about doing video inference, when we think about combining text systems with systems that reason over time, you know, these are all things that today you have to handle in kind of a very choppy, inconsistent way. And I think, you know, the techniques to to handle these in in more comprehensive and effective ways, they're burgeoning now. And I think it's a really, really good time to be to be advancing them because I think, again, just the surface area of the space is so large. Well, does this mean that sort of pure play neural nets have kind of run out of steam? And is that why they're seeking more inspiration back in the symbolic domain? And and, and by the way, symbolic is, is sort of hard to understand for an outsider, actually, probably even for an insider. What exactly are the symbols that we're talking about? Why don't you line that up a little bit? And then I'll ask my question. Definitely. Yeah. So and, and it, it is reasonably tough because the notion of symbol is just so vague. Uh, but it really, it dates back to kind of a, a very old way of thinking about human cognition almost, right? And, and I'm sorry, I don't mean old in a derogatory way. You know, I just mean, you know, like they came up with this in the, in the 40s or the 50s, which is this notion that we are, you know, symbol machines. And so it's almost, uh, you know, language, for instance, like each word I use, that is a symbol. The idea being that I have symbols inside my mind that I kind of explicitly am manipulating to come up with thoughts. Um and, and uh, for a long time, and I think part of this is just because it was academics creating theory, they're just like, this is how the brain works. Like, everything is super explicit, right? We just have to figure out what each one of these symbols is, and, and then it, it'll be perfect. And they tried for, for a long time to do this, like decades and decades and decades. Um, and, you know, I think, thankfully, we've recognized that humans aren't quite so cut and dry. Like, you cannot uh, mimic human reasoning without some implicit sort of 
surrender to the fuzziness of the problem. Um, but again, it, it's one of these really interesting places of tension where we can you know, recognize and show explicitly, okay, there is fuzziness in this problem. But at the same time, it's not enough to just sort of hand wave and say, oh, it's fuzzy, so we can't understand it. And I think that's one of the really you know, fierce growing tensions as we try more and more to mimic humans. We realize that humans are a lot messier than we, than, uh, than we thought, you know? And, and we're not very consistent. I, I love that phrase that you had, uh, that it requires surrendering to the implicit fuzziness of the of the problem, and and I guess the fuzziness of the human being, which, which is interesting to me, and it's always been a thing that I've been struggling with when it comes to understanding any kind of cognition research, which I've also been involved with for for some years, and it is this assumption that at any given moment when you are looking at this, you you sort of think, well, we have a model of the brain, and this is more or less how it works. Usually, you start with the model of the brain, or but but if it's not the brain, you start with the model of behavior, mm-hmm. or or something of there of that sort. But you know. Everybody who's involved in this business has the problem that they are stuck with what, wherever academia is at any given moment of time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, who, who is to say that we're any closer now or like how much closer are we than we were 10 years ago, 30 years ago when it comes to either understanding the brain or behavior or any of those things? Arguably, science moves somewhat forward. But, you, you know, if you're making too explicit reference to some academic paper or paradigm, and then you're saying, well, you know, this is how reality looks, and that's why we're going to design a system to mirror that reality. I mean, you're arguably in trouble wherever in history you find yourself. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the things, you know, I think the most explicit place I can draw to, right, is this notion of biological inspiration and neural nets and our, you know, neural nets and software are the same as neural nets in, uh, in wetware, if you will. And I, you know, you really did hit the nail on the head with the most important right? Which is, we, yeah, arguably, you know, I think we understand more about how the brain works now than we did 50 years ago. Like that, yes. Um, We still don't understand how the brain works, though, right? You know, it's kind of, we're chipping away at this absolutely massive, massive kind of area of research, and we don't even have a clear sense of how big it is, right? And so it's like, yes, we've chipped away, but, you know, can I say whether we're 1% closer or 80% closer or a thousandth of a percent closer? No, you know, I have no idea. Um, and, and I think that, I don't know, I'm a little bit of two minds here because I think that there are two modalities of people. I think there are people that really love the idea that neural nets and software are based off the brain and are going to try to like cram the two together at like every possible juncture, even argue that the two like mirror off of each other. Uh, and, you know, there's just, there's just no support for that, right? I mean, it's like we came up with the word neural network when we built neural networks a different way and we thought the brain worked a different way and the two have just like strictly diverged for the past 40 years. And there's not, you really have to strain to see any shadows of one and the other. But, you know, at the on the flip side, um, you know, there are some really uh, interesting areas of exploration there, right? I think Joshua Bengio is is notable for this in that, he really wants, uh, you know, kind of the neuroscientists and the ML people to play nicer together. There's a lot of cranks that make it a little bit difficult, but he's been very, very good at actually finding good ideas in biology and, you know, translating them over to the ML world in a way that, you know, again, ha- has a real understanding of both sides. So I-, I really do hope to see more of it, if for no other reason than 
Yeah, you know, I think we are a bit at the end of, of our current paradigm of thinking. And it, it's clear that we've got places to go next, but we're not sure which is which is sort of the right one. And so I, I kind of am like, you know, we need as much inspiration as we can get. But it is an interesting moment, though, for 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 the reason that if it is going to be a winter or, or a fall or whatever season, right? Mm. Famously, AI has all these winters. Uh, it's not going to be a winter in the sense that we have accomplished nothing, right? Because, right. I mean, and you're proof of that within Indico because, you know, you guys are ingesting valuable data and you're making inferences and you are, you know, relevant to companies today. So that's not yeah. going to go away unless we sort of start to say, well, you know, we've been so wrong that these uh, assumptions are like creating that, you know, cars are crashing, you know, towers are falling down, sure, right? Sure, sure. That, that would be a problem. And we would li- literally go into a winter. So, you right. know, but, but, but I, I hold point, that open they, as like a faint possibility. But, but, but they've been in production for, for a long time, right? It's right. like there's been really, really detailed testing. And, you know, again, that's not to say that there's never going to be an issue. But no, I think that, yeah, the chance of that, it, it's vanishingly small outside chance. Right. So, I mean, it, it may be a winter in the sense that it's going to take another few decades before we make, make the next big leap. H- how probable is that? So, you know, fast forward 20 years, 30 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, once you start thinking in decades, it's hard yeah. to kind of like pin it down. But, you know, if you flash forward a couple of decades or, or three or however many you want, yeah. what is it that we could be looking at? Are we still looking at these sort of hybrid transfer learning type approaches or mm-hmm. are we looking at some sort of radically new paradigm that would marry these things together, uh, you know, hybrid AI fashion with, with like some completely systematic new paradigm? You know, I think it, it's a good question. It is something that I think about a lot. And, you know, uh, you know, big disclaimer, obviously, is that the further away we get from today, you know, the less certain I can have any any kind of confidence. You know, I, I do think that a couple of things that are certainly going to be true is I think that the way that we think about training models today, that absolutely is like not sustainable and that has to change. Right. Today, we think very much we're training things up from scratch. Right. Transfer learning, to your point, it's sort of it's getting much more common. Right. But it's still not the way that you train most things. And while we're going to continue making incremental computational improvements, that's really where, you know, there's no shocking breakthrough we're going to hit there. And so what that means, I think, is that as we build larger and larger and more sophisticated models, we're going to kind of do away with this notion of training models from scratch because it's just so impractical. Uh, and there was a this notion is what's that, called zero shot learning, right? It's, you know, it, it's a part of that, right? I mean, the way that you yeah. tackle zero shot learning, I think that's a great place to look for kind of early research that's, that's pushing along in this path, right? And I think another really great thing to look up is, is this concept of model surgery uh, by OpenAI. Uh, and again, it is this notion that you're going to be chaining models together. You're going to have, you know, a base model that has been trained on, you know, bajillion data sets. And then you know, you're going to be making tweaks and tweaks and tweaks, and there will be model lineages and, you know, questions much more along those lines. So I think that is, that's one aspect of what is going to change. And I think, and, you know, there is, there is a discontinuity coming up, right? And I don't know that I would call this an AI winter, but certainly there are people who have pitched far beyond AI's ability to deliver. And I think we have a good sense of what is possible in the current deep learning jag. You know, I personally, very much don't believe that, you know, this current approach is going to solve all of our problems. I think that we've got an infinite number of problems. Um, and I do think that the, 
this is going to get us very, very far, call it one to two decades. And then what is going to have to advance for us to get beyond our current paradigm, though, I think is compute fundamentally. Um, And, you know, right now, quantum computing is the most likely contender for something to have a real impact there. But, you know, uh, to throw out, you know, maybe an underdog, uh, you know, there's new memory technologies as well that could have, you know, a similarly massive impact on what the future looks like. So, so maybe something else there. But what, what, what's, what sort of a magnitude improvement would we need, do you think, in the compute? Because quantum, you know, famously is a, a, a quantum leap, you know, certainly, you know, we're, we're talking thousands and ten thousands and, and, and may, yeah. maybe m- much more than that in terms of, uh, in, you know, kind of effectiveness improvements. What sort of leap do you think would make a fundamental change that would change the ballgame, whether you started from zero or, or from previous models? So, I mean, I think very much in orders of magnitude. I think that's how, you know, I'm not a business person. It's like a 2x is nothing to me. I'm like, what is that? That's a rounding error, right? So, no, I I think that GPUs are a great historic benchmark, right? GPUs, I think, you know, the commercially accessible and available, you know, individual GPUs led to this last renaissance. And that was, you know, somewhere around a 40x practical improvement in runtime, right? Uh, maybe maybe a little north of that, depending on how you did it. But I actually think it's going to happen very much the same way. Because the thing is that we changed our technique, you know, GPUs empowered the first leap, and then we started to change our techniques to match GPUs, such that we could push those multiples higher and higher and higher. I think exactly the same thing is going to happen, because most of the things that we do today in AI, they don't have obvious quantum uh, it's not to say we won't find them. You know, obviously, it, it's a very far future path. I can't make any assertions about them. But I think it, it's drastically more likely that we are going to find interesting approximations of the ways that we're doing this that are better fit to whatever quantum architecture we end up developing. And in doing so, there are some classes of problems in which, again, you know, if we can hit that 100x, like two, uh, you know, two orders of magnitude, I think that's, that's where you really have potential for a breakthrough. Um, and obviously, more more is better, but um, I think it starts with that. Um, t- towards the end here, you know, a lot of what you do is within the broad category of NLP, which is a, a, another sort of famously kind of difficult concept when you really start rounding it up. And it has to do with language and understanding language and human language specifically. Mm-hmm. Arguably. If a machine could render human language and understand human language much, much better by, I guess, to use, you know, your language by orders of magnitude, then that would in and of itself uh, be the kind of progress you're looking for. How probable is that? And how much does it really have to do with compute versus <laughs> to do with really kind of a new mental model for for how we translate our own language to a computer? So I actually, I think... I'm going to argue that that has just happened um, and has uh, shown a light on the answers to those questions, which, you know, I think in all cases, they're maybe not quite as optimistic as we hoped the first time around. But I'm just going to point to GPT-3, right? Because yeah. for, from a modeling perspective, the delta between GPT-2 and GPT-3 is, is minimal, right? Really, GPT-3 is an exercise in scale. And GPT-3 really did, from a compute and data perspective, push the boundary of what we consider possible from a scale perspective. And what GPT showed, which, again, I think it, it, it underscores this so much, is that just scaling the method up 
resulted in drastic improvements. Uh, in fact, such that in a one and uh, th there's a big but coming, I will say, uh, such that even in you know one and two and four shot learning scenarios, you know, just much much better than previous. Um, however, they also cited the fact that our current problem framings are woefully insufficient to test this language understanding, right? Um, and I think that's really the key to it, is that I think that before I saw really sophisticated language understanding in a sort of brain-in-a-jar type way, I was a lot more excited about it. The more that I realize it, the more that I realize that there's actually no such thing as understanding human language in a vacuum. Right. And the second that you give that to someone, they're going to push on edges around like, oh, you know, like it should have opinions about things. Right. You know, it should be able to understand some physical reasoning about the outside world. And I think those are all are all completely valid. But it's also why I say that I think we have pushed language really, really far. I think we've accomplished incredible things there. And I think that our ability to model language is far outstrips our ability to ask demanding and I think that's where this problem is most acutely felt, is that we need better language problems, right? This is where the Clever Hans effect came from, right? Is we need people creating data sets really using this, this detailed supervision that is linguistic and also things that really importantly bring language into the broader context, right? Whether that's, that's chat mm -hmm. conversations, just understanding the thread, right? Whether that's, you know, Reddit comment threads is, you know, that's something, right? Like, Anything in that direction, you know, obviously for us, that's bringing positional information in, studying the language of the document and the position of the document. But they're all, again, those are all fringes in that surface area, right? These are all really, I think, powerful areas of exploration. Um, Slater, just for the benefit of, of, of my uh, listeners and, and myself, GPT, what does it stand for again? And GPT yeah. 1, 2, and 3, can you just line up sort of roughly when these things happened and, and why they're relevant to totally. what we were just talking about within NLP? Because, yep. you know, people have different levels of, of uh, awareness of all these things and not 100%. everyone sits there and waits for GPT 3 to be issued. <laughs> no, no, it's very, very fair. So GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trade. Um, and it's, you know, uh, GPT-1, 2, and 3, that's a series of models produced by OpenAI that fundamentally all center around this idea of if we feed just a huge amount of text to our model and ask it to kind of predict the text that comes forward and, you know, understand it from a, a kind of semantic and grammar perspective, that that is enough to kind of give us uh, true intelligence, if you will. Um, and so that's that's kind of the notion of this whole GPT string of papers. Now, the, the lead author on, on GPT 1 and 2 and kind of the, you know, like father, I guess, of GPT, Alec Radford, he's, you know, a close friend and a co-founder of mine, actually. Um, but then maybe another note for folks that might have, you know, tracked this part of the news a little bit more. One thing that's really interesting is that, and this is the tragedy of the name GPT, honestly, is it's, it's a terrible name, right? It's super not catchy. Right, GPT three maybe it rhymes a little bit. Maybe that's why that one got uh, picked up. But uh, GPT one and BERT came out at almost exactly the same time. BERT came out just a little bit after GPT one, uh, and the two papers were so similar that BERT actually had to kind of put a pause on their publishing to add, you know, like five paragraphs throughout their paper, being like, okay, but here's why it's different from GPT. Um, but again, oh, yeah, it was just uh, parallel discovery, right? Is they both hit on this really, really great idea. Bert had, you know, an improvement uh, in some ways. Uh, 
but you know, I think the the branding success of GPT one versus Bert goes to show just how you know really it goes to show how much the AI community loves our puppets. Uh, you know, I think maybe that's the lesson of the whole thing. Um, well, it reminds me, and, and I, I will be mixing metaphors slightly here, but you know, when we had mapped the human genome uh, a quite, quite a long time ago right now, some people who weren't in the space and some people who were very much in the space said, it's all over now. We have mapped it. Everything's going to change. And guess what? You know, decades later, yes, everything has changed because we have mRNA now. We have applied it to vaccines. Everybody has felt it what this change means and the synthetic biology field and and many, many, many improvements have happened, but no, they didn't happen overnight. And they required much additional modeling, thinking, creative thought, and you just had to experience time. I think that's exactly right. You know, just just like mapping the genome is is very important for us to, you know, take a beat. We should recognize like, yes, we have made progress. This is awesome. Right, you know, like pat ourselves on the back. But really, the only thing we've done is, you know, we've turned over the next card and we see the next, you know, six problems that we've got to solve. Right now, suddenly we've got we've got an explainability crisis on our hands. Right, we've got multimodal methods that we need to improve. We need to understand how you know bronze and gold and silver data come together in the future. Right, we have to understand how we're going to regulate these and make sure we're not selling snake oil. Right, and you know, I'm excited for all of these problems. I think that they show more clearly than anything, the fact that we are concerned with these issues, that AI is hitting the mainstream. And, you know, these problems are not trivial, but they are solvable. You know, Slater, we're, we're coming to an end here, but one of the things that I really have come to appreciate about you in the very short time that I have known you is that, you know, you may have started out a prodigy and prodigies can sort of go several ways, right? It's, uh, you know, you you are in a certain sense, better than people because you have some thought patterns that are divergent and arguably, you know, you accelerate faster. But one thing that you haven't done is fallen into the trap of uh, skipping the explanation step. You've been very pedagogical with me and with my uh, listeners. And I find that a very attractive feature in, in, in smart people because it's so important. And I find it perhaps one of the most important things these days is that because knowledge arguably is advancing, and but you have been so humble about the degrees to which it is also not advancing. And I think to keeping all, keeping all of those things in mind and, and bringing us all along for the ride, it, yes, it is slower, right? But explainability is important. You know, and, and it may so even be important to your colleagues. No, and I, I think it's a great compliment that I wanted to give you. And it's so important. And I think I would even argue that I don't really want the kind of genius that doesn't explain themselves because, you know, life is too precious for that. And, you know, we may be making progress, but you got to string people along. So thank you for stringing me along. And uh, I wish you all the best in, you know, in, in, in taking this further, you know, in your way. And I hope to have you back on the show uh, some little while ahead when we have new problems to talk about and deconstruct. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You know, it was a total pleasure, you know, very happy to, to, you know, do it anytime. And no, I, I totally agree. The only, uh, I'll have one gripe, which is that I don't think that I'm smart. Uh, my view is that the whole of knowledge is so large that none of us know anything, right? You know, we're all kind of running around here. So the least we can do is, uh, help each other where we can. Well, thanks anyway. <laughs> Look, total <laughs> pleasure. Uh, thanks so much yeah. for having me again.
You have just listened to episode 96 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Hundheim, futurist and author. The topic was practicing multimodal AI. In this conversation, we talked about how Slater was picking trash off of the Wellesley dump for school engineering projects, loves Chinese fantasy fiction, had an experience with tech stars founding a startup, and how startups can indeed beat juggernauts like IBM that spend billions of dollars. My takeaway is that the secret to making money with today's AI technique seems to lie in blending various approaches, being able to ha- handle a myriad of data sources and meshing it together without losing the context and stumbling along, making predictions that make sense even though the underlying dimensions are seldom fully understood, using transfer learning approaches. I would personally hope we would get a few steps further soon, so the explainability also increased. We will get there soon enough, I guess. Let's just see if the technology is weatherproof and whether we can get there without another AI winter. I find it refreshing to talk with smart people who are also humble. That's why my bet will be on folks like Slater to build these systems for the future. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 74, AI Talent Diversity, episode 79, Futuristic AI, or episode 48, The Future of AI in Government. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.